Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed the past season of Untold Civil War and are excited for this finale episode. I want to thank all of you, my sponsors, patrons on Patreon, and loyal listeners for supporting the show. It's a privilege to produce content for you all to enjoy, and I appreciate all the kind words as I work harder to perfect my craft. Now, unfortunately, because I've fallen under the weather, you might be able to hear it in my voice, and I will also be on vacation in February, the next season will not officially start until March. But fear not, I will be posting on social media, that's Instagram and Facebook. I should also have some video content on YouTube still lined up to satiate your untold Civil War hunger. So please, subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow us on social media. Link to my website will be in the bio, click on that and you'll be able to access all of the above. And now, fix bayonets, draw sabers, and let's charge into a new year of untold Civil War. This afternoon, I sit with Dr. Richard McCaslin. He is the author of the book Fighting Stock, John S. Rip Ford in Texas. We will be discussing the legendary life of Rip Ford, the last victorious Confederate battlefield commander. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I know that Rip Ford is a pretty big character in Texas, but maybe the rest of the nation might not necessarily remember the name or, or know the name right off the top of their head. So could you talk about how you found the story of Rip Ford and what brought you to write the book? Well, it's nothing heroic about it. Some friends of mine at TCU, at TCU Press, had started a biography series about second-tier Texas heroes, not Stephen F. Austin, not Sam Houston, you know, the big names, but people we don't know much about, and yet we should, because knowing about them will give you insight into the times, et cetera. And they've done some pretty good work. So they came to me and said, we would like you to do a book. And I was very busy at the time. I was headed into becoming chair of the department. So I wanted to help him out, and I wanted to do a figure that was interesting, that had a lot of impact, but seemed to be very one-dimensional and simple. It would be a quick off, right? Wrong. I said, I'll do Rip Ford and spent the next five years discovering all the things that Rip Ford did, because he lived a very long time. And as I tell folks, there's probably no one who took more advantage of the opportunities Texas offered than Rip Ford. Um, he'll end up being a doctor, a lawyer, a thespian, a playwright, a Sunday school teacher, an editor, a mayor, a legislator, a Republic congressman. He'll run the deaf and dumb asylum. He'll be a state officer. He'll be commander of all Texas Rangers. He'll be the guy that wins the last battle of the Civil War. He'll be a historian and one of the founding members of the Texas State Historical Association. And I probably forgot a half dozen other things he did. When you uh, say all the things he's done in his life, it kind of reminds me of that the old beer commercial of the most interesting man in the world. Yeah. He looks kind of like the same fellow, doesn't he? If you look at the right time period with the beard and everything. Well, let's uh, get into it. Uh, Rip Ford, or John Salmon Ford, uh, before he got his name, mm. had an interesting start in life, and it really wasn't that fighting start necessarily. I mean, he was a doctor and a lawyer, like you mentioned, right? Right, but he was born in South Carolina, with a granddaddy that had served in the revolution and had been a community leader on both sides, on his mom and dad's side. So he had two of them. Um, he was named for one, and then the middle name, Salmon, came from the other. So his patrilineal father, grandfather was John Ford, and then George Salmon was his matrilineal. So he's born in South Carolina, moves to Tennessee when he's a kid, 
uh, grows up on daddy's farm. They had a few slaves, but not a lot. They weren't that wealthy. Homeschooled. Mama made sure he could read the Bible. May have gone to a few one-room schools, but he never seems to mention that much. And so he ended up looking around. I think he decided early on he didn't want to be on a farm. If you'll notice throughout his career, the one last thing he'll ever want to do is own slaves and run a farm. I did not mention that in the list. No farmer on that list. And so he hooked up with a local doctor. And as you may well know, the way you became a doctor back then, you didn't go to school necessarily. You just interned with a local doctor and you treated a few people. If they didn't die, congratulations, you're a doctor. So at the age of 21, he's married. He's a doctor. Maybe put that in quotation marks. He's got two kids and look like he would probably be in Tennessee forever as a small town guy. But he's got that burning flame within him that he wants to be like his granddaddy's. And that's when he hears about the Texas Revolution. And, and let's get into that. So he hears about the Texas Revolution. And is this where he starts learning about also the Rangers as well or ranging? Not exactly. Um, he joined a company, became their lieutenant, I guess, because he could read and write. They make all these big plans to go fight in Texas. And then they read the newspapers and realize the war is over. <laughs> Texas won, and the company disbands. Except Ford's determined he's going to go. You know, there's got to be some. So he heads out west. Um, sadly enough, apparently he divorced his wife about this time. She took the boy. He left the daughter with his parents. And he rolls into San Augustine, Texas, looking to join a revolution in an old beat-up wagon, hangs up his shingle as a doctor, and then quickly realizes you could starve to death being a doctor. And so that's when he starts getting involved in other things. He sits down and reads a copy of Black's Law, takes the test and becomes a lawyer, um, joins up and becomes a surveyor. You get lots of money and land. He'll laughingly say, you know, I had the best opportunity to own as much of Texas as I wanted, and I'm going to die an old man with almost nothing because I sold off all my certificates when I was a kid. He wasn't interested in land. He wasn't interested in being a farmer. So he's a surveyor, he's a lawyer already, he's a doctor. Um, he gets hooked up in the local Presbyterian church, teaches Sunday school, writes plays on the side and stages them with his buddies, which is hysterical because they have a shortage of women. So some of them have to dress up as ladies. And so you'll see future Confederate generals in drag in Augustine in plays. As he said, I was a terrible playwright and an even worse actor. So. What does that have to do with the military? Well, everybody's in the militia if you live in Texas, if you live in the American South, if you live in the United States this time. So he will get involved in the military as far as a member of the militia, but he has very little interest in the Rangers per se, which are around. Um, the first Ranger companies were set up in 1823. Um, other Ranger companies were set up in 1835 and 37, but you know, he just doesn't seem to be that interested in all that. He's interested in trying to make a living and establish himself in business. So you won't see any connection with him, with the military, except he'll be with militia companies that seem to always show up a day or two after the big fight with Indians somewhere. So he sees a lot of dead, famous Indians. But he never really encounters them in life, which, you know, it's perhaps... Just as well. Who knows what kind of militia he was with? It could have been a bad thing. So he's buzzing along and looking for opportunities, and suddenly politics looks good. So in 1841, he declares himself a candidate for the Republican Texas Congress against Sam Houston, comes in dead last in a part in a field of seven candidates, 
mainly because he made fun of Sam Houston. And you just don't make fun of Sam Houston in Texas in 1841. He'll learn. He'll run again in a couple of years and become one of the youngest members of the Republic of Texas Congress um, as an ally of Sam Houston and a good friend. <laughs> He's not dumb. He learns. And he'll end up in the Congress at the right time that the United States gives that final offer that Texas will take. And it'll be Rip Ford that actually introduces the resolution in the Texas Congress for the annexation of Texas to the United States. He's crushed, though, when the local San Augustine folks don't elect him as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. Because now if you're going to be a state, you can't use the Republic Constitution anymore. So looking around... He'll add another thing to his list. Um, he'll figure out that you can go to the convention if you have press credentials. So he becomes the journalist, the newspaper stringer for the uh, San Augustine Redlander and attends the Constitutional Convention as that. And as soon as the legislature set up a few months later, he gets the official contract for his newspaper in Austin to be the official reporter of the Republic of the uh, new state legislature. He's a very adept fellow. You, you count up the years. He's been in Texas, what, less than 10 years. He's already been a congressman, a lawyer, a doctor, a, you know, down the list we go. That's why I said I thought he was very one-dimensional and began to figure out, no, he's, he's pretty adept. And, of course, it allows you then to talk about all these new early things in Texas. But, of course, there is this fighting spirit that's just building there, that he's, he's got to get in the fight. Always there. Right, always there. And the Mexican War starts looming ahead, right? Right. This is both sad and fortunate for him. By this time, he's married a second time. Um, she gets very sick, and she dies. And all of his ministrations as a doctor can't save her. It's the last time we ever see any notation of him practicing medicine. I think the death of his second wife just derailed him from being a doctor. He then leaves the newspaper in the hands of his partner and takes solace just kind of hanging around. And he ends up down in San Antonio area, as far as we can tell. And there's these rangers. And they've gone down and they've been in service already in the Mexican War under Jack Hayes, John Coffee Hayes, Jack Hayes. And they're sitting around their <clears throat> campfires because the northern campaigns have pretty much petered out. They've been rotated out of service. So he's hanging out with them, you know, the grieving widower, hearing all these awesome stories. Because you know they got to be telling some stories about fighting in Mexico and, you know, the campaigning. And so he hangs out with them. And when they're reactivated under Hayes to go join Winfield Scott's campaign, First, they were with Zachary Taylor. Now they're going to go with Winfield Scott. Ford gets himself enlisted as the regimental adjutant. He's John Coffey Hayes' adjutant because he can write. He has political connections. And off he goes to Mexico. And so he'll have a grand time in Mexico. And this is where the fighting Ford really begins to establish his reputation. He discovers the magical wonder of the Colt revolver. Claims he shot a man at 125 yards with a Colt revolver. It was actually a Comanche raider a little later on named Otto Cuero. And Ford managed somehow, aiming at the middle of his body, to hit him in the left elbow. But he hit him. <laughs> and so Ford becomes combat veteran Ford. He becomes more of a combat officer than just adjutant. Sometimes he finds himself in some pretty interesting pickles. 
but he always seems to be coming back out. When he was an old man, Frederick Remington came to San Antonio, which is where Ford had settled with his daughter. And Remington, of course, liked to go to bars and find guys and say, hey, give me some good stories. You know, I'm writing a book called, it ended up being the book Pony Trails. And there was a guy who told him, quote unquote, I know an old man who will tell you stories that will make your eyeballs fall out on your vest. <laughs> of course, Remington loved that quote. So he goes and meets with Ford. And Ford tells him a lot of these stories of fighting in Mexico. So if you want to see pictures of what Ford told Remington, go pick up a little book called Pony Trails. And old Ford, fighting stock Ford, his stories are in there with Remington's illustrations. I mean, that's just two icons of the West coming together there. Yes, Remington loved Ford and his stories. I'm not sure his eyeballs fell out, but he had a great time. <laughs> 1863 Designs leads in Civil War-themed graphic design. Their stickers are great. A personal favorite is the Hospital Steward Insignia. Get your own sticker and pay tribute to the Army medics of the Civil War era. Link in the show notes. And for some of my listeners who might not know, and I'm sure they're, they're, most people do, can you talk a little bit about the Texas Rangers at this time? They're not uh, as formal as we think of Texas Ranger no. law enforcement today, right? All a Ranger is prior to the Civil War is a longer term active volunteer. A militia guy might be called up for a few weeks, but if there was a special problem like Comanche raids in a district or Lipan Apaches on the south border, the governor would issue permission for some person ultimately by the 1850s, it'll quite often be Ford, to raise a company of ranger volunteers, or maybe two or three at the same time, and go deal with the situation. They tended to be young men. Um, they had no uniforms. There's no badges. This is a frontier defense ranging force, is what it is. In the old European tradition, by way of the Spanish in Mexico, by way of the Anglo tradition, these are ranging companies that stay in the field for anywhere from a month to three months, maybe a little more, until the problem is resolved. They tend to be, like I said, young single men because older guys with families have things to do. You know, they can't be gone for three months. But you brought your own gun, you brought your own saddle, you brought your own horse. If you were lucky, maybe your captain had a little bit of money or somebody contributed it, and they might buy you some fancy weapons like revolvers. But that's where the Rangers get their reputation. They're the guys who deal with a problem, but they are really nothing more than a mobile frontier defense volunteer force at this time. I say the Rangers went to Texas, excuse me, went to Mexico. We're talking about guys with Ranger experience who were recruited into a regiment with the idea that they'd be able to use that previous experience at being in the field, at following orders, at you know, being quasi-soldiers, paramilitary force in a useful way. And they did, in fact, in Mexico do very well. They also gained a horrific reputation for undisciplined conduct, shall we euphemistically call it. If you came and killed one of them, you know, in a bar fight, the consequent, you know, karma could be horrible. The payback's a you-know-what. <laughs> and they were noted for that. By the end of the Civil War, it was seen the value in organizing reunions among veterans of the war. Many organized excursions to Niagara Falls, and even the old battlefields themselves. 
Today is no different. Polar organizes such retreats for those who have sacrificed for our country. Check them out at the link in the show notes and consider supporting them with a donation. How formal was the leadership structure for these organizations? I know when I was reading a little bit about the Texas Rangers, it seems to be their history is driven by the famous leaders, right? Yes, the great captains of this time, and Ford will become known as one of the great captains. My feeling is the guy who got the permission to raise the company or a couple of companies, he's automatically got authority. The rest of them, it was very much a democratic system in that you had to impress the guys you were with, or you had to walk in the door with a reputation as a guy who could shoot, who could lead men, that could be trusted, that wouldn't get me killed, all these sorts of things that a man might vote for in choosing a lieutenant or a captain. So that's why you'd a lot of times see local community political leaders ending up involved in the Rangers as officers, because, you know, you already knew them. You already accepted them as authority figures, et cetera. Very much like the militia at the time, very much like how we're organized, at least in the early part of the Civil War. Who do you elect your captain? Uh, how about the town mayor? He hadn't messed up anything yet. So let's, And then, of course, a year into it, after you've been through a couple of fights, you decide whether or not that mayor is really a good combat leader. Or maybe Sergeant so-and-so seems to actually be the guy who knows. Same with the Rangers. And it's it's really much, it's very much the, the way the militia operated, all the way that we come up with the National Guard in the early 20th century. Part of the reason we needed the National Guard is we needed less fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants leadership sometimes. You know, people always ask me, why do the Confederate regiments and Union regiments always seem to be charging straight ahead? Well, if you've got all these untrained, inexperienced leaders, what's the one thing they know to do? Charge. <laughs> An enfilade left sur le derriere upon the enemy, Napoleonic style, was probably beyond your average drugstore clerk who's now captain of the company. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> right, move to the sound of the guns. Can't go wrong. Move right? to the sound of the guns. Follow your flag. Don't lose it. Those are your instructions. <laughs> go. Go to that pile of trees over there. I mean, that's what they were charging at at Pickett's Charge, right? God on the trees at the center. You know, nothing more complicated than that. I've done a couple of papers on this because it was an intriguing question. Why don't they get more fancy? What is interesting about Ford, though, and I'm probably going to jump one of your questions here. He comes home from the war. He's got the bug now, right? He's been a combat leader. He's been a ranger. He's been a soldier learned how to use a Colt revolver and do very well. And so while he goes back to writing for the newspaper and he's looking for opportunities, and in fact, he'll end up a brigadier general in a Mexican revolutionary army south of the border by 1850-51. Carvajal, whom Ford called the Washington of Mexico, has established or who's trying to establish an independent republic in northern Mexico. So there's Ford leading all the American volunteers that joined him. Where does Ford get these? They come from ranger companies that he had been leading in 1850 and 51. Because when the U.S. Army promised that it would defend the Texas-Mexican border, they quickly figured out, we don't have enough people to do that. Especially, we don't have mounted companies. They're expensive. And third, we don't know anything about this area. So suddenly you'll see ranger companies coming back into service 
and Ford is one of those commanders. And when that opportunity peters out, he crosses the border and becomes a soldier for Carvajal. And then Carvajal sends him back across to Texas to recruit. Ford decides Carvajal is going to fail, which he did. So Ford gets himself elected to the legislature. And according to accounts, showed up in the legislature wearing his Mexican brigadier general's uniform. He's careful. Now, for me, it's sometimes very hard to think of a Texas character like Rip Ford wearing a Mexican general's <laughs> uniform. He'll do it twice. But maybe you can expand on that a little bit and talk about this era of, I guess you could say, filibusters and this time where people actually did kind of go out to other places, other nations. And it was kind of normal-ish, right, I guess? Uh, not normal, but maybe not as surprising as we would find it if we suddenly read, you know, Donald Trump showed up in a small African country leading their revolutionary forces or something. We think that was rather bizarre. But remember, what is driving Ford? He wants to be like his granddaddies. They created a country. He'll never regard himself as a Texian. That's the word he uses for those original Texans who created the independent country called the Republic of Texas. He missed that opportunity. Oh my God, suddenly Carver Hall is there and he seems like a he's a Virginia ed educated fellow. I know, a Mexican who went to the University of Virginia, speaks beautiful English, writes great pronunciations, pronunciamentos. And so Ford, he's a rebel in search of a cause and he's looking to create a country and here's an exciting chance to do that. Now, others will say well, what attracted a lot of the Americans was Carvajal said, all the runaway slaves here in northern Mexico, I'm going to send them back to Texas. Well, there's just not that many. And, but Ford didn't go slave hunting. I never found any evidence of that. He's going to create a country. He's going to help people have democracy and freedom from a despotic government that seems to keep putting Santa Ana back in power. <laughs> Uh, which Santa Ana's coming back in by the 1850s. Remember Santa Ana, he served 11 times as president or emperor of Mexico. Not one of Ford's favorite people. So Ford is, that's what's driving him, I think. And when he sees that that's not going to work out, he ricochets back to Texas, serves in the legislature, goes back to editing a newspaper, and by the middle of the 50s is mayor of Austin, and sometime marshal, because it saves money, so... You know, he can be marshal and mayor at the same time. A lot of good stories about that. My favorite is the guy who was at the bar in Austin, and he's raising hell. And Ford walks in quietly, doesn't introduce himself, and said, look, you need to leave town. You're a problem. And the guy looks at him, and Ford just walks out. Says, I'll be back at 6 o'clock. You better be gone. So the guy turns to the bartender. This is according to William Walsh. It isn't a Ford story. It's a Walsh story. Asked the bartender, who the hell was that? The bartender said, that was Rip Ford. And if I were you, I'd be gone. The guy left. <laughs> Good to have a reputation by this time, isn't it? You know, the guy who could hit somebody at 125 yards, the guy who fights along the border as a ranger and a soldier and even a Mexican revolutionary. So that's the baggage Ford is packing by the mid-50s. As I've mentioned, I've fallen under the weather. And condemned to my couch, I turned on the TV and, well, there's only so much of Downton Abbey and Wednesday one can watch. Thank goodness for History Fix. I have been able to enjoy some great programs on Hunter's Raid, Maine at Gettysburg, and even westerns like Friend of the Devil. 
don't miss out and subscribe at the link in the show notes. Well, can you talk about, because I think there's a lot of myth and legend that surrounds the oh. nickname Rip. So can you get into that a little bit? Okay, everybody will tell you, and I said it three times in the book, and it doesn't matter because nobody's paying any attention to me. It's okay. Because I'm telling you a Rip Ford that they don't want to hear. They want Rip Ford in buckskins, you know, with a pistol on each hip. There's a wonderful picture of him in 1857-58. That's the Rip Ford they want. Hard drinking, hard cussing, hard fighting Ford. Wasn't a drinker. Could cuss a magnificent streak if had to, but generally didn't because newspaper editor and a mayor. Uh, hard fighting, well, yeah, but not just straight ahead. We can talk about that in a bit because he's learning how to fight. But that forward is gaining the attention and will survive. And that forward is the one that has that middle name of Rip. Where did that come from? When Walter Prescott Webb was writing his Ranger book that'll come out in the mid-1930s at Texas Centennial, and it'll be the basis of a movie, Hollywood made a movie out of it. Rip Ford's grandson told Walter Prescott Webb that the Rip was RIP for rest in peace. That when Ford was the adjutant of the regiment in Mexico, he would send home these consoling letters when the Texas Rangers got killed to the family saying that a rest in peace would be the last requiem patio. Yeah. Rest in peace would be put that under his name, RIP for rest in peace. That's where it came from. That's what the grandson told Webb. It went into the book that's probably one of the most famous ever Webb, uh, Walter Prescott Webb books. And people tell that story constantly. Now, why would he say that? Why would the grandson say that? Because his mommy told him that. You know, your mama tells you it's the truth. Who was she? Rip Ford's daughter. And I picture she loved to go with him around Austin as a young girl. This is post-Civil War. Go to the veterans meetings. He always wore, rode a big black horse and she would ride with him in parades. And people would come and say, hey, Rip, how you doing? How you doing, Rip? Now, when your little 8, 10, 12-year-old daughter turns to you and says, Daddy, why do they call you Rip? Do you tell them, well, they started calling me that because I ripped into my enemies. You don't tell an 8-year-old girl that. Nor do you tell her what may be even be a more troublesome truth. He got malaria in Mexico. It was recurrent all through the rest of his life. Sometimes at very inopportune moments. So there are times when he fell out of his saddle asleep. He couldn't remember the names of his men most of the time. So he had nicknames for them, you know, Sleepy, Doc, Dopey, whatever. So they had a nickname for him, Rip Van Winkle Ford, the guy who would fall asleep. You going to tell your daughter that story? No, you make up some malarkey about rest in peace, Ford, you know, the adjutant. Not because you slaughtered your enemies, not because you kept falling asleep and falling out of the saddle, which actually shows up in newspaper accounts in the 1850s. Sorry, Rip, but it's still there. So that's where it came from. That's a long way around to say it's what he told his daughter and she told her son and he told Walter Prescott Webb. The truth lies somewhere between the furious warrior who ripped into his enemies, which did show up in some accounts, and the guy would fall asleep from malaria and fall out of his saddle, Rip Van Winkle Ford. 
I mean, just to add to that story, I don't think we've found letters, right, that show him writing Rip. Good point. Mm-hmm. I usually say that I've not yet found a single letter that Ford signed with an RIP. I've not found a single letter he wrote home saying, I'm sorry your son was killed or any of that. None, it's all a lovely story. Absolutely no evidence whatsoever for it. And yet I can show you newspaper articles for Rip Van Winkle Ford and also the Ford who left a 40-foot wide swath of blood in South Texas. It's like, really? (laughs) And that was a Chicago writer, like he'd ever met him. (laughs) Lately, I have been so busy that sometimes it is hard to find the time to sit down and crack open a whole book. But I still want to get some untold Civil War reading in. Well... With Military Images Magazine, I can pick up the magazine and read a short article here and there. It is very convenient, and it keeps me up to date with what's going on in the Civil War image-collecting hobby. Enjoy this luxury, too, by subscribing. Well, before we leave his sort of Texas Ranger uh, days, I mean, he goes on to become a leader of the organization, right? Right. He was called back into the field at his own behest, um, led a company out of Austin, um, which he had equipped on his own. They had all the latest technology. As he bragged, there were 100 men and they could fire 1,500 shots without reloading, which would be pretty imposing on the Western frontier in 1858. The governor quickly makes him not just captain of his own company, but major of all Texas companies. And so Ford fights probably his last and greatest ranger campaign between 59 and about 60. First against the Comanches in North Texas. We're here. I want to make sure I'm I show you that he has developed, he's not just straight ahead charging. When he attacked Iron Jacket's camp on Antelope Creek, Ford knew that the Comanches had a huge disdain for other Indians. And the Indians, other Indians had a huge hatred for the Comanches. So he had 200 Indians with him, everything from Tonkawas to Wichita's to Caddo's, a few Delaware, some Shawnee. And he had 100 Rangers with him in that fight. He posted the rangers behind a hill off on Iron Jacket's left flank. He sent the 200 Indians directly at the camp at a slow trot. Of course, Iron Jacket sees them. He then leads his Comanches out to confront these 200 losers, because that's the way he thought of them. And he can't see the rangers behind the hill who can fire 1,500 shots without reloading. So Iron Jacket comes out to confront the Indians, Ford concealed on his left flank. Ford has his sergeant with him who has a Sharps carbine and says, shoot that guy. Because Iron Jacket believed he couldn't die. He was wearing some sort of Spanish male shirt that a shaman had told him would deflect bullets, deflect arrows, and he could even blow away bullets and arrows with his breath. So if you picture this big guy wearing this chainmail shirt, riding out poofing because he's blowing away the bullets and the arrows from his men. The sergeant hit him with a second shot, killed him. And by the way, the Texans will take home a piece of the chainmail as souvenirs, throwing the Comanches into total confusion. Then the 200 charge, and at that moment, the 100 Texans come over. It's basically like holding your hand up in front of a guy and saying, hit my hand, and you know, swinging your arm. It's the same tactic Truthfully, the Nathan Bedford Forrest used over and over and over. Ford has learned, give your enemy something to look at and then hit him hard in the flank with everything you got. 
rather a complex concept for a guy as a ranger captain. So Ford will win at Antelope Creek. He'll be then sent down south to chase away Juan Cortina. He'll chase him deep into the Sierra Madres. And on the eve of the Civil War, then Ford has a very happy conversation with one guy named Robert E. Lee, you know, telling him, you know, I'm I'm Ford. I'm the guy you've heard about. And I'm sure Lee was rather bemused <laughs> to meet him. And the eve of the war, then, if you were looking for anybody that was going to be one of the brigadiers from Texas, it probably would be Ford. And Ford is one of the four great captains of the pre-war period when we talk about that. You know, it's McCulloch, it's Hayes, it's Ford and Bigfoot Wallace. So Ford has done, if he had died in 1861, we'd probably still have a, bo a book on him. But he doesn't die in 61. The war begins. Absolutely. And, you know, this is untold civil war. So we better get into the civil war portion of the story. Yeah, pretty quick. Um, what's interesting about when the civil war breaks out, I mean, you talk about tactics, but it seems to me he's also able to gain victories without spilling any blood early in Which the war, right? Quite proud of. He will brag about that, you know, about how they fumbled it at some turn, had to shoot at people. Well, he didn't have to fire a single shot. Yeah, when the secession convention met, 61, they passed an ordinance, and in respect for Sam Houston, who was the governor at the time, they put it up for a vote. There's a three-week gap between their adoption and the vote. During that time, they're busily organizing three regiments of state troops and arranging for the expulsion, the surrender and expulsion of all Union USA federal troops. Ford is one of those three regimental commanders. So he is assigned with approximately 800 guys to go to the south border where there's about 8,000, six to 8,000 troops maybe, and several hundred pieces of ordnance and several hundred, or several dozen forts. And his job is to send them out. His job is to secure their surrender, to make sure they leave the good stuff behind and get the heck out of Texas. And he does so without firing a shot, which of course in adds greatly to his reputation. He's going to flip over into Confederate service. He will be put in charge of the defense of the South Texas border. You know, if you looked at the first year of the war, he's on the fast track. He's going places. But he is kind of anchored by this time because he's married again to Addie. Addie Smith, whom he always called the redheaded institution and with whom he'll have three children during and just after the war. And she's in Brownsville, so he really doesn't want to leave Brownsville or Texas if he can help. And so there's a little, there's a little hint of something else going on. Old fighting stock Rip Ford has maybe got a, a muzzle put on him. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I would have thought that Rip Ford would have found his way into Virginia or Tennessee and be up Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. He messes up. Um, he's down there on the border. He's in charge. Carver Hall leads another rebellion in favor of a felon named De La Serna. And Ford, against the orders of the Confederate administration, supports Carver Hall and gives him shelter, gives him sanctuary, and helps him re-equip and at least survive in, in North Mexico. This was, I think, where Ford really messed up because the orders for Ford's removal from command came directly from Richmond. And so every time people will now, throughout the rest of the war, come up and ask for a commission for Ford, you can see that reaction in Richmond. Oh, that's that guy. He endangered our relationship with Santiago Vidari down on the border. 
he almost blew our major cotton trading outpost down there. Uh, no, we'll just leave him down there. I think also, though, Ford knew what he was doing. Um, Ford is a Texas nationalist. Confederate nationalist, no, not so much. If Texas is part of the Confederacy, yes. But again, he's still looking for that revolution, isn't he? He's still the revolutionary. And given his choices, he was a Texas nationalist. And that's so he gets to stay with Addie in Texas. He gets to work for Texas. Now, he does say in his memoirs that this is the biggest damn mistake he ever made in his life. That not standing for re-election as colonel of the regiment, because when it went into Confederate service just a few weeks later, he said, I don't have to stand election. I have my commission from the state of Texas. Uh, no, that's a Confederate regiment now. But So he, he figured that out later when he was in his 70s, but... At the time, it didn't seem to connect with him. And by the way, he's not even 50 years old yet. He's not too old to go off for service, as some have written. But he, he blew it. He was removed from active command and assigned to the worst job in Texas if you're in the military. He gets to direct the draft board. And there's a logic. He's a famous guy, right? Everybody knows Rip Ford by this time. He's the guy that beat Iron Jacket. He beat Cortina. He's been this and that. So if you're trying to get people to support an otherwise very controversial agency, put one of your favorite sons in charge of it, and maybe they won't complain so much. And so he does that job. And he does it in a very soft-handed fashion. Um, he had a theory that why would you want somebody to be a soldier for you when he doesn't want to be there? He's not going to be a very good soldier. Oh. And by the way, to make sure that that legend continues, he and William Walsh, who was his second in command, burn all their draft records at the end of the war. We don't have any draft bureau records for Texas because Rip Ford burned them. Uh, another part of this, just to show how complicated things were, I think, in Texas at the time, doesn't he get in with uh, Lou Wallace a little bit? Lou Wallace. How does Ford end up with Lou Wallace? Ford is running the draft bureau, hates it with every fiber of his being. Suddenly, the Union Army lands at Brownsville and actually occupies much of the southern coast of Texas in the fall of 1863. This is post-Vicksburg. This is after the defeat. You know, there's no resources that can be sent from anywhere else, much less Louisiana, where the Union Army is very actively campaigning as well. So the commander of Texas, Prince John Magruder, John Bankhead Magruder, Looks around and people are telling him, Ford's a fighter. You got him sitting at a desk over there running the, con the conscription bureau. Put him in the field. He'll organize a fighting force and take back the southern coast for you. Men, boys, convalescents, deserters, they'll all come out of the woods to fight for Ford is their theory. Sure enough, they appoint Ford in charge of the Rio Grande Expeditionary Force. Ford puts out the call. And we got deserters coming back from Mexico. We have guys who were wounded and came home from the Eastern theaters who suddenly, I can limp well enough or ride a horse. Old guys, young guys, he got about 1,600 men together. And he marches south. Again, this is when Magruder contacts his boss, Kirby Smith, and says, I need a commission for Ford, at least Colonel. I really want a star for him, Brigadier General. And Kirby Smith says, I've contacted Richmond. They said they don't like this guy. 
So Magruder goes to the governor of Texas, Pendleton Murrah, and says, make him Brigadier General of the state troops. Murrah says, fine. Ford is appointed Brigadier General, 1st District, Texas State Troops. There were other Brigadier Generals. And then Magruder issues an order as a Confederate commander saying all Confederate officers and men will obey Ford as if he were a Brigadier General in Confederate service. This pissed off some people so bad they quit. There were a couple of colonels who said, uh-uh, I should have had a star. But here comes Ford. He's a Brigadier General state service with Magruder's orders in his back pocket saying, you have to obey me as if I'm a Confederate Brigadier General. So does he pull it off? Yeah. He quickly occupies Brownsville. Fortunately, the Union Army abandoned it two days before he arrived. So that, you know, Ford's always, you know, he doesn't have to fire a lot of shots. <laughs> he settles into Brownsville. The cotton trade begins again. Everything's good. Ford is sitting there in Brownsville when he gets an interesting communication from Lou Wallace, the guy who writes Ben-Hur. Lou Wallace, by this time, it's March of 65. Ford occupied Brownsville in July of 64. Ford is busily rotating his men home on thirds so they can tend crops, etc., holding about maybe 1,000, 800 to 1,000 guys at Brownsville. Lou Wallace has gone and gotten Lincoln and Grant to sign off on this scheme that he thinks will take Texas out of the war. He's pitching it now with Grant and Lincoln's support to Ford and his boss, James G. Slaughter. The idea is that Lou Wallace will bring a bunch of Union troops off Brazos Santiago Island, which is very close to Brownsville. It's the only little outpost the Union still holds in Texas. They will, under their flags and officers, join with Ford's men under their flags and officers, jointly invade North Mexico and drive the French out. Ford thinks this is a great idea. Slaughter's not so sure. <laughs> so he contacts their boss, Kirby Smith. Kirby Smith says not no, but hell no. Now, we know in part that this is because Kirby Smith is already negotiating for a job with the French when the Confederacy loses, which is what he expects is going to happen. So yes, the future writer of Ben-Hur is sitting down on a blanket with wine and munchies with Slaughter and Rip Ford on Brazos Santiago Island and talking over this scheme to invade Mexico again. You think this would be exciting to Ford? Oh, he loves it. <laughs> it's great. Even though Mejia, the imperialist Mexican general across the river there, has been very good to him, very supportive. But, you know, Ford still has that Carvajal dream in his head of uniting Texas with a chunk of northern Mexico all the way down to the Sierra Madre. So I think ultimately that must be what he's got in his mind. Needless to say, that did not work out. Kirby Smith said no. Slaughter says the boss says no. Lou Wallace settles down very disappointed. And so Ford has got a promise from his new buddy, Lou Wallace. There won't be any fighting. But there is going to be one more fight, isn't there? Well, that's definitely what I would like to get into. Because uh, as we've seen so far is that he wasn't able to go up north uh, to Virginia or Tennessee to fight. Uh, as you said, when he went into these areas, the Union troops it. were gone. So he's waiting for that big fight. And that big fight does find him even after Lee's surrender, right? Yep. It's in early second week of May, 1865. Like I said, Ford's rotating men home by thirds. He's got Lou Wallace's promise, but Lou Wallace is left by this time. Lou Wallace has gone off to do other things. He's a very ambitious fellow. I think part of 
This is about the Union commander Obrazo Santiago has plans for running for Congress after the war is over. So he doesn't have a big win on his resume. So if he occupies Brownsville, and he thinks he's heard that Brownsville is being evacuated, that the Confederates are backing away. So he comes off the island, breaking Lou Wallace's promise to Ford. Ford scouts come and tell him there are Union troops coming up the river. It's not very far, you know, from Brazos Santiago up to Brownsville, 20 miles at the most. Slaughter turns to Ford and says, well, that's it then. Let's pull back. You know, we don't want to fight. Because they know Lee has surrendered. They've seen the newspapers. They're not idiots. Ford says, no, no. I had a promise. That man is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. I am not backing up. And so Ford decides to attack with the portion of his troops that he can get to come with him, which we think is somewhere around three or 400, maybe. Several companies of the Rio Grande Expeditionary Force, whom, by the way, Slaughter regarded as a bunch of thugs. <laughs> he didn't like them. <laughs> so Slaughter prepares to leave and go one way while Ford prepares to charge down. And it's a very bizarre battle in many ways. It shouldn't have happened. Does it affect the war? I don't know. I doubt I could really make much of an argument. Does it affect how Texans have a great pride in their lost cause and it's part of their trilogy of big wins in Texas? Absolutely. Though I'm going to crush a bunch of them now that see it when I point out that Rip Ford was not a Confederate officer when he won this. He was a state brigadier general. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> That's his commission. And so he and these 300, maybe a little more, go raging down there. Ford's commanding his troops. He's had a problem recruiting artillerymen because Texans would rather be cavalry than artillery. It's cooler. And so he's got six guns with him, which he places two in front, two on the left flank. <laughs> Sound familiar? It's the same old tale. He's doing the same thing to this Union force that he did to Iron Jacket, the Battle of Antelope Hills in 1859, which I find just fascinating. Plus, he's got a two-gun battery, kind of a mobile reserve. And there's a point at which he races up to a two-gun section and says, fire at those, you know, you can see the Union emplacements. And they just stare at him. And finally, Captain George Giddings looks at him and says, sir, they're French. And so Ford goes, oh, Along, <laughs> boom, he speaks enough French. <laughs> so yeah, Bahia had sent over some artillery crews to man the guns for him because he was short on gunners. Now on the Union side, there were actually Cortino, some of his guys were in it, we think. The border is a very strange place and Ford really fit into that real flexible mix. But let's finish with Palmito Ranch first. Um, the Union troops were overwhelmed. They were not, I don't think, expecting such a firestorm. <laughs> they back up quickly. They retreat all the way to Brazos Santiago. Uh, Slaughter realizes what's going on, so he shows up around 5 o'clock in the afternoon and tells Ford to charge across the water and onto Brazos Santiago Island. And Ford says, no, no, we, we made our point. <laughs> the battle is over. The Confederates... As they are, the Rio Grande Expeditionary Force has won a fight. Um, they have a bunch of prisoners now. Um, a lot of debate over what happened to them. I think it's very simple. Ford looked at all these prisoners and said, I haven't got anything to feed them. So he paroled, sent them home. 
It's the easiest thing to do. Um, he's got two captured flags that he will collect and fold very carefully and stuff them in his uniform because he knows it's close to over. And when he crosses over that river, which is he going to do, he's going to go to Matamoros, by the way, with Addie, because she was supposed to stay in San Antonio, but she said no and showed up. And she's right there in the middle of, of the fight, much to his distress. Um, the redhead institution does not get told what to do. She's half his age and she's got a hard head. She's already had two babies now and she's going to go where she wants to go. They'll cross over the river and he keeps those flags with him just in case he needs to negotiate with any federal authorities. I guess the idea was, you don't arrest me, I'll give you your flags back. It's <laughs> oh, a strange place. And over there he hooks up with Mahaya, becomes a brigadier general for Mahaya. Tomas Mahaya, he's the imperial Mexican commander. Indian descent. He's the one that will die at the wall at Corretro with Maximilian. Very sad story. So he um, actually serves with the Imperial troops that he had originally been planning with Lou Wallace to uh, kick out of the country, right? Yeah, problem. <laughs> <laughs> He's um, a, very interesting. Uh, it's a job. And uh, his partner, he shares an office with Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace is also a brigadier general from Mahaya, you know, the future governor of Indiana and the writer of Ben-Hur for a year as a brigadier general in Mexican service with Rip Ford down in Matamoros. Border's a weird place. <laughs> in this new year, I hope to visit more battlefields of the Civil War. Seeing the ground where these armies clashed gives you a better understanding of how and why certain tactical decisions were made in the field. You can't get that experience from reading a book or viewing a map. Now, the best way to visit these sites is to utilize Civil War trails. They have marked the trails with interpretive signs to help you better understand the ground on which these great hosts cross sabers. Learn more at the link in the show notes. One of the things that I've always wondered about the Battle of Palmino Ranch, and maybe you can shed some light on it, is I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, I read some of the orders, the or original reports, the ORs from the battle, uh, from the Union side. And one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, there was Imperial Mexican cavalry on my flank forming at the border. And so I had to fall back. They were definitely forming up on the Mexican side of the river. That depends on where you are on the river. So whether they actually come across at you or not. Now, I've been so fortunate as to actually visit with a fellow who still owns his great, great grandfather's house on the battlefield. And we stood on the flat stuccoed roof of this place and he pointed out where everything was. You can't cross the river right there. I mean, you can swim a horse across, but it's not going to be an effective crossing. And I, I remember noticing that. Absolutely. I think, though, my personal reaction, and I've read the few books that are Palmino Ranch, I've read a lot of the official reports. I think we've got a guy who's been embarrassed, who made a big boo-boo. <laughs> strategically and tactically speaking. So he's coming up with all kinds of reasons why it didn't work out. I did not get my Heine handed to me by a bunch, by 300 Texas thugs <laughs> who can't even work their own artillery. I was defeated by a combination of fine Imperial Mexican forces. You know, if you read between the lines, because that guy got court-martialed. And a lot of what we know from the Union side comes from his testimony when he's facing a pretty embarrassing situation. 
That's just my feeling about it. Ford understood it's a psychology fight as much as anything else. Artillery don't do that much physical damage. But if you're standing in your position on a slight rise and you can see your enemy in front of you, you can deal with that. And Ford gave him that. Part of his force is there. One of his batteries is there. But suddenly you hear gunfire and artillery cracking from behind to the side. As much as your brain wants to say, we can deal with this, your legs sometimes say, no, we're out of here. <laughs> and Ford was a very good fighter in using that. Get behind them, get them going. You know, it's very Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, get a good scare going. And once that scare's going, they're not thinking anymore. You can move around. There were more Mexicans on the Texas side of the border in the September 1864 skirmish at Palmito Ranch than there were in the final fight in May of 65. And I think the argument that there were a lot of Mexican Imperial forces is from a guy who's facing a court martial and he's trying to explain what went wrong. Right. I mean, in a way that won't get it cashiered. <laughs> right. I mean, it's during a time where there's victories everywhere. The Confederates, the, yes. you know, they're all surrendering. How can you lose at this time? You know? Yeah, exactly. And you're the one guy in a column in the newspaper that says something bad happening. And it's a scary time because, you know, this is when Davis is trying to get away and get to Texas. He's got, you know, the ex governor of Texas and the postmaster general, uh, John H. Reagan, with him. He was also from Texas, and they're trying to get a boat off the coast of Florida. And fortunately for them and for us and for the country, they were caught in Georgia. But what would have happened if Davis had actually landed somewhere near Corpus Christi or Brownsville? And suddenly all these troops would have rallied to him. Oh, my God, another two years of the Civil War, which was part of this grand dream, but it didn't happen. Ford, I think, understood that it's pretty much over. But let's see what kind of peace we can make for Texas out of this. And my family and my kids, you know, <laughs> let's, let's be reasonable. What's new from the Excelsior Brigade? Some rare and unique items like a hard image of color bearer James Arnold of the 12th Kansas sporting crossed flags on his sleeves and a couple hard images of various zouaves from different regiments. These are must-haves in any serious Civil War collection. Link in the show notes. Well, I'd also like to talk about, like you said, very sad story about Mejia and uh, Maximilian. How does Rip Ford get involved with that? Because I'm a little curious about that. He doesn't. He's gone home by that time. In 66, things went to hell in a handbasket, to use a good old Mississippi expression, at Matamoros, for the French imperialist forces, which were mostly Mexican troops. Um, there were some French. But they lost Matamoros. They lost control of North, of North Mexico. Um, things are falling apart. And, of course, Maximilian, after some discussion, the French have already left. Marshal Bazan is evacuating his troops and pretty much almost all gone. Juarez is victorious on all fronts, he and the generals that work for him. And, of course, Mad Maximilian, uh, Mejia, and a third whose name I can't recall right off, were captured and sentenced to be shot at Corretero, which is a town not too far from Mexico City. And the, the sad part to me is, is that Mejia, as an Indian, as a native-born Mexican, probably could have worked his way out because many did. And the story I've heard and read 
is that the night before he was to be shot with Maximilian, friends broke into the jail, pried the door open, and came into his cell and said, now let's go. We got a horse for you. We're going to take you away from here. You're going to be okay. And Mahaya sat up and looked at him and said, I'm a general in my emperor's service. I will die with my emperor. And he sent him away. And it's like, wow, I wouldn't have I got horse and gotten out. But Vidati, others worked their way, at least for a while. Um, a guy named Patricio Milmo comes to mind. He always lands on the right side. Juan Cortina, always landing on the right side. He fought with the French. He fought for the French. He fought with Juarez. He fought for Juarez. You know, the deal he made with Diaz was, uh, you know, he lived out his last years in Mexico City. And Ford came to visit him there. They hung out and drank and played chess. <laughs> Just, the border is a very strange place. They had spent between 1859 and the 1870s, 10, 15 years trying to kill each other. But when Ford took Brownsville, he protected and took care of Cortina's mother. And when the redheaded institution, Addie, popped up in Matamoros pregnant and delivered a baby, it was Cortina who arranged for her protection and her safe conduct over to join Ford at Brownsville when he took it few months later in the summer of 64 they did for each other and then Ford's trying to write a book about all of his experiences and a guy named Bancroft Hewitt Howe Bancroft had written the whole thing wrong in his volumes he had written that Cortina had defeated Ford and driven him away during the Civil War in the first fight at Palmino Ranch when Ford occupied Brownsville so Ford went all the way down to the little place where Cortina was under house arrest which Ford partly arranged, sat down and drank and played chess with him and got him to sign off on a true, accurate account of what really happened at Brownsville in 64 and 65. Picture these guys. It's a very interesting life that Ford leads. And, of course, by the end of the Civil War, he's he's a phoenix from the ashes, right? He's the guy that lost his commission in 62, got relegated to a crappy job. Now he's won the last battle of the Civil War. He enters the pantheon of Texas saints. <laughs> you know, how could you not revere Ford and Dick Dowling and John Bankhead Magruder? He won Palmetto Ranch, and the other two won, of course, Sabine Pass and, and Galveston. That's Ford's involvement in all of that. There's stories, and I, I tell them in the book, you know, there's old comrades that get in trouble and Ford crosses the river and allegedly goes and talks authorities out of killing them. By comrades, I mean, we're talking Mexicans that he had served with and back and forth across the border with Carvajal during the Cortina days, during the times he was in Brownsville on, on, during the Civil War. He is a very fantastic and interesting character. I think that we could talk about him all day. <laughs> There's just so much to cover couple last things I'd like to ask you. Uh, one, just a curiosity. I don't know if there's an answer to this, but you know, you mentioned a couple of these interesting relics, I guess you could mention, or even souvenirs, you know, the pieces of the iron jacket, uh, the right. flags that were captured at Palmito Ranch. Do we know where those are today uh, or did they just disappear in history? The iron jacket pieces, a large chunk was sent to the governor. It was put on display in the Capitol and it burned up when the Capitol burned to the ground in 1881. We know a bit about that. The flags, I think, are probably back with the states 
that had them in the first place. Um, I can't call in the ordinals right now, but I bet because Ford didn't keep them. One was a small, almost a guidon, and one was a regimental flag. And I think that was sent back to the, if I remember correctly, the Indiana unit that it came from. But I'd have to check on that. It's not everything sticks in this brain forever. <laughs> Things fall out. Relics. I was tickle pink one time to walk in the Texas Ranger Museum at Waco, Texas. They're working on Ford. And hanging in the hallway, though I haven't seen it since, but it must be there somewhere, was Ford's marriage certificate in a frame. <laughs> That's a relic. You know, his papers still survive. He kept a massive amount of papers. And they're out at Midland, Texas, in the uh, Haley Museum out there. Long, strange history of how they ended up there, but they did. Um, he wrote a memoir, which is down in Austin. It's a lot of fun to read that because you can see the editorial marks that friends of his put on there. That was supposed to be published. It was just, just too big. It's over a thousand pages because there's not a single story that he ever heard that he wanted to leave out. You know, there's a, a book by Stephen Oates called Rip Forge, Texas, which is really nothing more than about a third of what's in that memoir. So he's still with us as far as the material. I would also tell you a little secret in that a lot of these books about Indian fighting and stuff that were written in the last half or the last third of the 1800s in Texas, he wrote those chapters. He would sell them for a dollar a piece to these editors who would say, Weren't, didn't you, don't you know something about the San Saba fight? And he would sell chapters at a buck a pop to like John Henry Brown and all these, all these writers, James T. DeShields. The badge maker, the most talented sutler in the reenacting hobby. When it comes to taking your Civil War impression to the next level, you have to visit his site at the link in the show notes. ID discs, core badges, watch fobs, watch chains, watch winding keys, pipes, canteen covers, all the specialty items you need to set yourself apart from the rest during this upcoming reenacting season. Well, it seems that Rip Ford not only did a big part serving in Texas and everything that he did, but I think he also added to the memory of how we think of Texas. He was very active in the in the um, reunions. He's very active in veterans gatherings. I think he'd like to get together with the old guys. And of course, given all that he did that we've talked about, he could go to Ranger reunions. He could go to Mexican War veteran reunions. He could go to Indian fighter reunions, Civil War reunions. And he did. And that's why I say by the 1890s, which is when he passes away, he's not telling history. He is history. He's kind of like old man history when he shows up. He says, oh, there's Rip. He'll know the real truth. And it might not be the real truth, but it's Rip's story. Like when Remington shows up, send him to Ford. He's got the stories, you know. And in part because he was there a lot, but in part because apparently he had a pretty good memory. And he would remember these stories. So just to conclude here, how does knowing Ford's story affect our understanding of the Civil War? How does that add to our knowledge of the Civil War? I think it adds, it takes away from that kind of mythical, mystical, last gentleman's war, neat, tidy lines and battles and everything's so tidy and very civil. No, it's very much a war that involves 
people, not just in Virginia or Tennessee or Georgia and Mississippi, you know, all the way out to Arizona, for God's sakes. You know, you know, we got Battle of Picaccio Peak, which Ford was not at. That was the other half of the regiment. But it involves international relations. It involves imbroglios or schemes on the Mexican border. I think, to me, it adds a much richer aspect to it. And we also can learn that our heroes aren't perfect, that while they do things that are impressive or the right thing at the right time, or even multiple things at the right time, to know his ups and downs and to know how he made it through and all of that tells us a lot more about what it was like to be in Texas or to be in the Western frontier, to be in the United States at that time. And, you know, all the characters he meets, all the things that he has to deal with. To know that it wasn't this movie, there was something very real and very much like what we go through today. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing the story. And I will definitely put a link to the Amazon link uh, to, uh, to your book so people can purchase your book. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening while you battled that New Year's hangover, drafting your New Year's resolution, cleaning your Springfield rifle musket, wiping down your sword, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful new year. I look forward to producing more content for you, my listeners.